You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. DXY turned south, treasuries in transition, and we talked the Bitcoin dip. Also, by the way, happy 420. I have a feeling we're going to hit cannabis stocks. Welcome back, Tony. Ash, it's great to be here. We're going to have to talk about them today, aren't we? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like required. Mandatory today, I'd say. Absolutely. So, Tony, what's going on? What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? We hit those four points coming in. I know you've got thoughts. Yeah, you know, there was a big change, a big sea change last week, Ash, that we need to discuss in the Treasury market, most importantly, right? We went from trading a bear steepener in Treasuries where yields are going higher and the curve is widening to bull flattener, which is Treasuries are rallying, yields are going lower, and the curve is compressing, right? So that little sea change right there was the first time we saw nominal yields fall in um, about five or six weeks, right? Tony, so if, was- you could, if you could talk to that, for people who are not uh, eyebrow deep in the bond market, what does that mean? Why is it so significant? And what does it signal about what may be coming in terms of the real economy? Great question, Ash. You know, I skip over that sometimes with too many assumptions, thinking that everybody is right in step with me. But let's go back over this. We, while this market had been rallying straight up through four uh, K S and P, let's call it, the bond market was in a very specific mode. Right, yields were rising. So we have Treasury selling off. That's the bear part of the equation, right? What also was happening. The yield curve was widening out. So the spread differential between, say, twos and tens or, say, fives and bonds, different maturities, was getting wider, right? What is that signifying? Higher yields are signifying the potential of inflation creeping into our picture or at least an increase in economic activity. And the steepening curve is definitely pricing in an increase in economic activity. And that causes certain things to happen in the markets. For example, with this specific move of nominal yields rising and the curve widening out, we saw banks pick up and rally, right? Banks have been sitting there for months with a flat curve, zero interest rates, no real margin to latch onto for their businesses. Banks were flat and not performing. Now you give them a little bit of interest rate differential to play with, a little bit of a wider curve so they can charge some spreads when they lend money. Now they're back in business. That's why you saw the financials rally. So that was a key part of the last sort of regime of this market. And it could still be going on, but we have to notice that something changed last week. Last week was the first time we saw a significant pullback in yields. We reached a peak in this US 10 year at about 175 or so, maybe 172, I have to go back and check. But we just backed off to about 1.52% or so. So with treasuries rallying, 
yields backing off. We also have the curve flattening a little bit. So now the market is pricing in. Maybe we've priced that inflationary move already. Maybe we've priced, you know, that frenetic reopening economic pace already. And now the markets can back off and find a middle ground. So hopefully I've explained that, Ash, and how important it is to notice when the bond market starts marching from one yeah. tune to another, right? Yeah. There's going to be a spillover effect in equities. There just has to be. Right. Okay. That's perfect context, Tony, about the price of money uh, and understanding how these markets work. So critical to understanding what's happening in the equity markets. So basically, uh, you're saying you've seen this a bit of an overshoot. You saw yields rise, then drop uh, a little bit off their highs. It looks like around one spot seven five, as you said. Uh, and then to like add the next layer of complexity onto it, you talk about the flattening uh, versus steepening of the curve. So this is the curve looking at multiple terms at once. A really important thing for people to be able to visualize to understand what you're talking about. Exactly. The curve in your head, if you want to just talk it out conversationally, Ash, it's just the bond market looking at one time frame versus another and saying, let's see, do I expect a little bit more economic activity out five years than I do out two years? And in your head, you could say, oh, I see how there could be a difference there, right? There's a three-year spread in how, how uh, much the economic drivers can change. I would imagine that the spread can change between those two maturities in the price of money because of that economic change. So right. it's something that sends very, very clear signals to the equity markets, which is really why I follow it. I'm not a spread trader. I don't put risk on in the spreads. Uh, those are like when you're sitting back in the Corvette driving and you're watching the odometer and the speedometer and everything. That's how I'm looking at the bond market. I'm looking at it to give me the signs of how the motor is running. Yeah. But very well explained for people who just follow the equity markets, why it's important, why it matters. And that's a clinic on how the pros think about this and understand how all of these variables interact. You're too kind, man. You know, while we're on the subject, Ash, we may as well talk 420 stocks for a minute because, <laughs> you know, those are the, those names. And I just checked back again. Those are among the weakest performing sectors on 420 day. Right. And to me, that's like a reminder that. Maybe all of the good news is baked in, if I may, to the sector, because, you know, we just came through November and we got a whole bunch of five more states legalized, right, from 30,000 feet up. Back in November, we get five more states legalized. We get... Um, we're now moved into uh, Schumer talking about legislate, legislation in New York to legalize cannabis, um, which it has already been done on the recreational side. Now he's talking about building in represent, uh, restorative justice as we move on to the Banking Act. The House has approved the banking bill. Everything good for cannabis is on the tape, you know, and so maybe that's why we're seeing this pullback. Also, right. if you're a technician like I am, nobody can miss the sort of day one head and shoulders class that the MSO sector is putting on right now with one shoulder, a big head, and then another shoulder next to it. And as we speak, Ash, we're sort of descending below that neckline, which is a little bit of a dangerous predicament for cannabis stocks right now. So yeah. my outlook in the near term is probably for more pain. 
Yeah. Uh, so a couple of points uh, for people who may not know, first of all, MSO is the multi-state operators. Uh, these are the big players in the cannabis space uh, that people tend to watch. You said two other things in there, Tony, that I thought were so critical. Uh, first, I was trying to suppress myself from chuckling when you said baked in, uh, but this is absolutely a critical point to think about how the market has priced this on a forward basis and whether some of this pullback may be some of that exuberance coming off the table in terms of the perception of the folks who do what you do so well, which is watch the tape for information about what's happening in markets. And the second point that you made, uh, that people who may not be following the space as closely as you are, uh, is so important for them to understand, is you talked about what uh, Senator Schumer was talking about. It's all well and good uh, for states to legalize cannabis, whether it's on the recreational level uh, or on the medicinal level. But you've brought up something that's so important that you just touched on there, which is coming up with legislation for the banking sector. Right now, these are cash businesses. Uh, this is something that's very challenging for a lot of operators in the space uh, all across the board, across geographies and across the different places in that vertical. It's a critical point for people to understand. Yeah, as you know, it's not it's not lost on me. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be the main cause that cannabis pulled back from the highs, but it's not lost on me that since yields have gone higher, the sector has struggled. So here's a sector that's looking at having capital available to them for the first time, you know, through the legal banking system, and already the cost of capital is moving away from them, right? So borrowing at 10 years for them just went from 50 basis points to one and three quarter percent. And they didn't even get to place their first loan yet. So I think that the market is sort of reacting to the fact that money is already getting expensive for this frontier sector before they even get their hands on. Yeah, cost of capital, incredibly important point in any business. Totally. Yeah. So, Tony, one of the things that we touched on in the opening bullet points was DXY heading south. What are your thoughts there? What's going on? You know, I, I never left my feet, as we say in trading, as a dollar bear when the dollar index peaked above the 200-day moving average and looked like it was heading north. Right. I stayed with my view. I stayed bearish. And it was really difficult to have the trade or the view in my face. But when I stood back and did, you know, all the calculations of what the predicament the dollar is in, nothing really changed. Right. And as I see Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen continuing to sort of pile on with the stimulus attitude, if they may just tie it all up in a bow for a second, where they're going to address everything literally with more checks from the government. I still get more bearish the dollar. And then next thing you know, she falls back through all three major moving averages, the 50, the 100, the 200 day in 15 days of trading. So now I'm back in a position of strength thinking the dollar is going down. It's adding tailwinds to my commodity trade with the Aussie dollar picking up strength now, with the euro picking up strength now. That's forcing things like iron ore to trade higher, and it's giving a boost to base metals and steel. So these, um, the move in the dollar is a sort of really, really another really important speedometer to my commodity trade. So seeing the dollar index back off from above 92 to you know below 91 now, or right around 91. Um, is really important and critical to that trade. So this was one of those things in the markets that sort of proved your view right and let you take a breather with the risk that you have on the table as it starts performing alongside it. Yeah. 
Well, you know, as you know, Tony, DXY uh, peaked around uh, March of uh, 2020, hit about 101, so off 100, uh, off about uh, 10 points uh, from there. So probably inevitable, obviously, massive flight to quality when you saw uh, the beginning of the pandemic. Some of that drift downward inevitable. But the points you raised, very interesting in terms of some of the action we've seen recently. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, you know, I, you know, my whole dollar weakness idea is predicated on the fact that the biggest economy in the G10 is going to continually be adding more and more debt in at a, at a more rapid pace than we have been adding in the last several years. So it's not as much the size of the debt pile, Ash. It's just the fact that we've just gone to, you know, over 20T or 26T now in national debt. We've just taken the balance sheet from four to 7.8 trillion in a super quick, um, you know, super short time frame. So the, the pace at which we're borrowing our future has accelerated. And that makes me bearish the dollar. That's a very inflationary scenario. Yeah, I should say we're recording here uh, around 3.30 uh, on uh, Tuesday afternoon. I've just gotten a flash across the screen. A verdict has been reached in the Derek Chauvin murder trial, uh, obviously the murder of George Floyd uh, being discussed. Verdict hasn't yet been released, may be out by the time that this goes live. Uh, so obviously some potential uh, interesting, uh, something that people are watching there from a market perspective and obviously uh, just from a national news perspective. So just so we're not uh, superseded by that, important to point out, recording here now at about 3.30 today. Just in case it shakes up the S&P. Just in case it shakes up the S&P. Uh, by the way, I was looking, you know, it's funny, I'm spending a lot of time in the crypto space, but it's, it's really interesting. Uh, sometimes when you're kind of out of the space, you get to look a little bit more big picture. And I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a five-year chart of the S&P. Uh, April of uh, 2016, S&P 500 at 2065, we're now around 4130. Uh, so it's half, right? So it's literally doubled in five years, right? Like your back of the envelope number, it doubles in five years. Steady drift higher. Yeah, that sounds like a liquidity parade if I've ever heard one. Sure does, doesn't it? Give us a yeah. little bit of insight for people who are who are looking at this, doing what I did today, kind of trying to get the big picture. 4132 right now on the S&P 500. But to march up from 2065 to almost exactly double, uh, talk a little bit about the central bank uh, aspect of it. And obviously, it's it's interesting as we're having this conversation here, who would have thunk if we were talking about this in April of 2020, the only thing that mattered was that sharp, steep uh, retracement in the chart. But now we're on trend or higher than trend growth in terms of the relative valuation of S&P. Extraordinary story. We're throwing kerosene on a burning fire, Ash, right? We, we are coming out of this lockdown with another four trillion on our Fed balance sheet, we've got the economy back up and almost running on a manufacturing measurement. Right, we've got ISM um, institution of supply management prices paid up around eighty. We've got um, PMI up around fifty eight now. I mean, the economy is firing. The Fed, as if you notice, is still 
monetizing the same amount of debt, $120 billion of uh, mortgage back and other uh, securities, every, corporate securities every month. They're still buying, you know, LQD and HYG, the corporate credit ETFs. So, you know, with the S&P at 41.25, you're still seeing the Federal Reserve with the same pedal to the metal that they had in March of 2020 when we were wondering if we're ever going to come out of this lockdown again. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've come a long way in getting manufacturing back in gear and getting the global economy back to reopening. But the central banks of the world haven't removed any accommodation. And if you look back on the accommodation that we've gotten from, you know, call it the great financial crisis on, that's generally the way it goes, is that emergency accommodation becomes de rigueur, you know, business de jour. And then next thing you right. know, we've got the S&P doubling in five years, right? That's the new phenomenon I think that we're encountering. Yeah. Uh, the emergency measures somehow become standard operating procedure. It's like, um, I don't know, this is just my emergency uh, glass of scotch uh, after uh, after we get off the air. And then suddenly it's like, well, no, nah, it's like every day I need it to unwind. It's like the system just gets juiced. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's what, you know, because Jerome Powell is still out there, um, you know, just today he made an interesting comment that he wasn't going to let inflation run too hot. But that's the first time I've heard him even, you know, walk back the talk of trying to stimulate inflation above the 2% target. So, you know, I don't know whether he's right. tempering, I don't know whether he's sending a signal or whether that was just a, you know, conversational comment, maybe taken out of context and put um, maybe in too much weight behind it. But right. we'll find we'll find out. I think the Federal Reserve is still on its path of being, you know, as dovish as can be for as long as the eye can see. Yeah. And if you will go back, uh, whatever it was, a few weeks, you get the statement about uh, not thinking about it, not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Right. Exactly. So we're going to let it run hot, but we're not going to let it run too hot. And, you know, the whole thing now that we've got, you know, a two point something headline CPI number, you know, year over year on the tape that came out last week while I was away, Ash, you know, we're starting to get above the target and maybe that's what he's addressing. But yeah. it feels to me, you know, if you look at the commodity markets, especially with this recent dump in the dollar over the last two weeks, the commodity index has come alive again. Right. Like grains just traded to a new high today, to a new three year high today. They're up the last six days in a row. They're up the last three weeks in a row, you know, confirming our ideas that we entered a new bull market in grains. The iron ore just traded a new high for the move. I mean, these commodity markets are sending inflationary signals that are well beyond whatever the Federal Reserve is looking for in headline inflation. So I think that's what the market is going to have to trade off of. Yeah. You said so much uh, in the last couple of statements, and I just want to unpack some of it uh, for people, because uh, it's kind of a shorthand that you're speaking in for traders, people who know this, uh, especially on the central bank side. You were talking a little bit about HYG and LQD, the ETFs uh, that effectively track the corporate bond market. Give us a little bit of sense of, number one, why that's so significant uh, for these markets, and number two, why it's so extraordinary. Well, it's a great point, Ash. It's, you know, it's extraordinary because it's something that's going on in Japan. And it's something that, you know, in my, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, will the Fed ever buy corporate credit ETFs? I would have said, are you mad? Like, that's not something we do here. Right. Fast forward 20 years later through a pandemic. And next thing you know, it's something we now do here. So my point right. in what, why they're doing that, you know, the Fed offered that to for the Federal Reserve to buy high yield and 
investment grade bond ETFs as a supportive measure as we were coming out of or actually going into the March lockdowns. So they anticipated all this corporate weakness. They anticipated weakness in corporate credit. And they said, we're going to step in and be the bid in corporate credit. So that all sounds okay when markets are coming apart and the VIX is up above 50 and everyone's hair is on fire. But now that everything has calmed down, and as you say, we are pressing new highs every day in the S&P, it would seem, again, it would seem like the Fed might remove some of that accommodation because within right. their per within their purchasing of the HYG, which is the high yield credit ETF, they're buying a lot of high yield credit, therefore small companies with bad credit ratings. And then in the LQD ETF, they're buying a lot of credit that is from companies that are AAA rated and have billions and billions of dollars of cash on their books like Apple. So now with the S&P at 4K and Apple at, you know, call it near all-time highs, you start to wonder why the Fed is still buying their credit to support the markets Yeah, in any way, shape, or form. So that's yeah. why it's important to know that they're still pouring kerosene all over this fire by yeah. continuing to take these securities off the market that otherwise sober investors would like to buy themselves right now. Yeah, and you begin to wonder if they're doing it because they just can't stop, right? Exactly. The signal that they send if they stop might be horrific for the market. So maybe that's why they have it. Yeah, absolutely. And what you, you were saying uh, earlier, and by the way, I'm, I'm not taking a position here or judging, uh, but you said that's not something that we do here. It seems like there are a lot of things that we don't do here until we do them here. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you've got to get that, you've got to kick that financial Overton window open, Ash, in 2021, and start expanding your mind as to what you're going to hear out of the Federal Reserve or out of any other central bank on the planet. Yeah, and listen, I, I, you know, clearly I don't have any of the answers here. Uh, so it's interesting they're they're put in this position, and I've I've long said that the the reason that the Fed acts is because they have no choice. They're the fire department. When the building gets burning down, uh, they're the people who get called. And you know, we know that Congress, uh, being what it is, the one thing that everyone seems to agree on, whether they're on the left or on the right, uh, is that Congress isn't doing what it should be doing uh, from from many perspectives, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's uh, you know the ability to very quickly pass the right kind of targeted stimulus, uh, other structural challenges in the economy, and who winds up fighting the fire? It's, it's Jay Powell and the fire brigade. Absolutely. And now with the help of Janet Yellen and the Treasury. So they've got a two-pronged attack for it now, Ash, ready to go. Yeah. And that begins to look a lot like those three letters, MMT, when you see coordinated activity between central bank and fiscal policy, right? It feels like we're there, right? It feels like we're pretty much there. It seems like we are printing an exorbitant amount of money that is not going to be you know paid for in any level of tax hikes right so we are essentially at the level of simply you know straight mass monetization as far as i can tell so you know whether we formalize it or not it feels like mmt is here <laughs> Yeah. And that makes you wonder. Uh, obviously, it gets us right back to one of the points we opened the show with, uh, you know, the one steam valve there, uh, flexible exchange rates. What happens to the dollar? That's true. What happens to the dollar? What happens to gold? What happens to Bitcoin now? Right. It's all in play and they're all being traded by major institutions as a form of currency. So it seems like, you know, these I, I, if I was one view that I had, Ash, is that I'd probably be long FX vol at these sort of cheap levels yeah. just with, um, you know, just with Bitcoin elbowing its way into the picture. I'd sort of like to be long the basket of Bitcoin, gold and FX vol 
as you know, this whole fiat currency trade plays out over the next several years when we figure out how the market is going to react to this massive deficit we just built. Yeah. And you mentioned Bitcoin. That was one of the, the one bullet point that we hadn't hit yet. We'll get back to that in one second. But talk a little bit about how you as a trader put that trade on. How do you get long vol uh, across multiple currencies? Is it through derivatives? Is it the positions itself? Is it with leverage? How do you think about it and how do you do it? Yeah, you know, for my practical terms, it's not really for the um, novice trader at all. It is when I say get long vol, I would say that means that I would be looking to trade options from alongside in any of those asset classes or securities, meaning I think that volatility could expand because I think there could be a lot of uncertainty in those markets or certainty, certainly even more uncertainty than we see today. You know, it's very interesting to see Bitcoin get all this attention and continue to double. You know, the S&P has doubled in five years. How long did it take the Bitcoin to double from 16K? Uh, a couple of months, right? So here's an asset class that still just has an incredibly small market cap for what it seems like it's going to be worth one day, elbowing its way into the FX macro picture. And that's why, to me, you know, I'd want to be long some volatility in Bitcoin and some it's really long optionality. Ash is saying that I'd want to price something um, with more creatively than I would think if I was just long Bitcoin, like buy a hundred thousand dollar call in Bitcoin yeah. or buy, buy a hundred dollar call in oil, you know, and get long some things like that. Yeah, uh, two quick points here. First, uh, when you were talking about your framing on the uh, on the currency trade uh, with derivatives, sure sounds like Adult Swim. Yeah, hundred percent. Whenever you're trading volatility, you've thrown a Rubik's cube into your trading matrix. They are very difficult to figure out. Trading volatility, I'll tell you right now, leaves more ways than you could imagine to burn the retail investor because you can get a trade right directionally and get the volatility side or the sort of Greek side of the trade wrong yeah. and lose money on it. So here you are like long and upside call and you think you've got the security right because it's rallying. But because it's rallying, volatility is collapsing and therefore so is the value of your option, whether it's a put or a call. So that's the sort of, you know, duality that it's a little bit of the shell game if people don't have a lot of experience trading options. Yeah, theta, gamma, all kinds of stuff comes in that's pretty complicated. Um, the second point that I was thinking about was when you were talking about Bitcoin as a macro FX asset. Boy, that phrase alone, just casually being able to say, and of course, Bitcoin is a macro FX asset. Wow, here we are in 2021. Ain't nobody saying that in 2019. You could not find it was like, well, there's this weird asset class out there. But to be able to be like, hey, this is an FX macro asset class, that's a pretty extraordinary transition. Hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm the first one that know, or I feel like I'm one of the first one that noticed like, wow, look, Bitcoin is coming off and there goes the stock market going down. So all of a sudden I'm looking at it as a potential barometer of risk because I see de-risking everywhere. And the biggest de-risking on my screen at the time is Bitcoin. So I'm wondering now if Bitcoin is leading this whole charge where people are getting out of energy trades and this and that just because they're de-risking and Bitcoin going on. So, you know, it's something that's, uh, you know, I'm not guaranteeing or saying that that's what happened. Sure. But for, for somebody that's been watching the same tape for 30 years, you know, it certainly looks like there were some kinds of coincidences going on there that I can't ignore whether I like them or not. So if, um, you know, if Bitcoin is going to occasionally lead the risk charge here and there, We've got to be sitting up on our chair as to where the next 10% or 15% might be now that it's backed off the highs and it has a couple of bears, we'll call it, shooting against them. 
right? We just had tur- Turkey outright banned Bitcoin, not going to build any confidence in their lira. Um, the Treasury right. just said that they were going to, um, you know, investigate any potential money laundering or improprieties taking place in digital currencies. So there are some circles being drawn around Bitcoin, and they aren't upside targets this time, Ash. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm still not sure I understand the commentary coming out of Turkey. They've only banned it as a payment mechanism, but not as an ownership mechanism. I was talking about this with Raul, and I said, boy, this sure really sounds to me uh, like just traditional old-fashioned capital controls on the lira. Yeah, it, it sounded like a really weak verbal attempt to do whatever they could to, you know, build some confidence in their lira and start sort of take some from, you know, what they're considering, obviously, a competing currency. They may have just shined the light on the fact that they're actually worried about Bitcoin. So, yeah, who knows? knows? Jawboning in the Bitcoin age. Yeah. You know, it's wild, actually. This is the first time that I've seen, you know, one security with, you know, five sentimental high signals and the security just doesn't back off. You know, like look at Bitcoin. We've got we've got the laser eyes, you know, in the retail community getting greedy. We've got Musk buying Bitcoin for Tesla. We've got the Miami Arena named after the crypto exchange. We've got a $70 million JPEG on the tape, a 70 billion Coinbase IPO. I mean, if Bitcoin's ever gonna back off, it's gonna back off now. Right. Like this is the most positive tsunami I've ever seen of headlines. And the price finally stalled. So we'll see if this is it. You know, but that said, sure looks like there's support at 50,000. Oh, there's going to be support all the way down. The chart's beautiful. I'm not going to argue that. The pull trend is well intact. I am praying that it gives me a chance to get my hands on it. I hope there's a flash crash in Bitcoin so that we can stick some bids in, Ash. <laughs> Tony, really we've blown do. through our time. We've covered a lot here today. A broad conversation. Sum it up for us. What are you thinking about and what are you going to be looking at forward uh, as the next week comes? Yeah, you know, I got to keep a big eye on the bond market as that uh, rotation changes there into a bull flattener. That's a very different. Um, it's a very different arena than equities have been swimming in for the last six months. So I'm going to be concerned that it could change the rotation dramatically. Um, I'm watching the fact that the VIX broke down below 20 into a new range, a new low range that it hasn't seen in a while between 15 and 20. If it holds this range, that's going to lead me to believe the S&P can continue to fly higher. And we may as well end off where we started, you know, with an eye on the dollar index, because that's the real wind. Uh, the weak dollar is the real wind in my commodity trade sales. So I'm going to root for that thing to keep going lower now that it broke back below the moving averages. Well said and tightly summed up. TG, thanks for joining us, as always. Thanks for having me, Ash. Thanks for watching, everyone. Liberty sees me, it stands by me, and celebrates me for who I am. When I come into the office, I feel that I belong here. I don't have to be corporate America Gabby. I can just bring Gabby to work. Reach your potential and find a job you love at Liberty Mutual. We offer development training, rich benefits, and a culture that lets you bring your whole self to work so you can pursue your tomorrow today. Ready to consider a career at Liberty Mutual? Find out how at LibertyMutualCareers.com.